we are going to continue working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. If you got your Bibles with you, you can open up to chapter 26, which is crazy to say chapter 26 because the end of Matthew is chapter 28. So we are almost done. And the wildest thing is that I think that these final passages of Matthew, the, the passion of Jesus, are actually... I think it's going to line up with the actual Holy Week that's coming up uh, next month, um, and so or in two months from now. And so I think that on Easter we're going to teach um, the resurrection from Matthew, and then the week after that do Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, and then be done with Matthew, like in April. I, I don't know how it happened. All of a sudden, um, I thought I had more time to prepare for whatever's coming after Matthew, and then all of a sudden, here we are. Um, but for tonight... We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. This is the beginning of the end. Um, it starts what we call the, the passion of Jesus. It's the story of the week or so, the events leading up to Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. So the triumphal, in Matthew, the triumphal entry happened a few chapters ago. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It's followed by some, of, some teachings of Jesus his judgments against the Pharisees and the other kind of religious elites. Um, but rather than making like a significant like chapter break, narrative shift earlier, Matthew does it now. Here in chapter 26, it begins with after Jesus had finished saying all these things. Um, that has been a, a marker of transition for Matthew to let us know when he's kind of leaving one section and moving on to the next one. Um, throughout the book, and you can look back and see it in several different places, and so that's just what we need to know now before we start reading, is we're kind of like, we ended a scene in chapter 25, and we're starting a new section now in chapter 26, and so I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 for us. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand these words that we have read, that they would be more than a story, more than information, but actually a means of knowing you, of seeing Jesus. 
Would you help us to examine our own lives and our own hearts, our own habits and actions so that we would be willing to be um, changed and challenged to become more like Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I have two questions when I come to this text, which I suppose I maybe always have these questions, but particularly as we move into the passion narrative, which is what is happening in the actual story? Um, It's such, we've read the story, we've heard the story, we've talked about different parts of the story so many times, but when was the last time you read through it, the actual story of the week of Jesus of leading up to his death and uh, burial and resurrection? And so I wanna make sure that we see what's happening here in the story, that we understand it. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that I'm asking is what um, might the Holy Spirit be trying to do today in Valley Church or in your, in your life individually maybe um, through the way that Matthew's telling us about these events. So he's arranged them in a particular way um, and maybe, maybe God wants to do something if we can see that and, and understand it. And so what's happening in the story um, is it's the beginning of the passion narrative. Um, we've been so used to unpacking like Jesus' teaching every week. Um, but this time he isn't necessarily doing any teaching. Usually he's, he's teaching his disciples or he's you know, judging or correcting the Pharisees and we're like unpacking, okay, what did that mean for them and how do we kind of apply that teaching to us today? We're in a different situation. We're not doing that anymore. It's just, it's different now. We've moved on to a different section and so um, we have to focus on the events of the story and we also have to focus on uh, the second part which is what is the Spirit of God trying to do? Um, through the way Matthew has arranged it because he has arranged it in a um, particular way uh, compared to the other Gospels. If you find this story that we're reading here in the other Gospels, it's fairly similar in Mark, but Luke places this story like way earlier in the narrative and it, and it kind of flows into this teaching moment for Jesus to talk about forgiveness. John places this event kind of right before the triumphal entry so that he could have Jesus kind of having a particularly strong entry into Jerusalem. So they're telling true stories, all these gospel authors, but they're arranging them in a particular way to do particular things for us as we read them. And so why, is, why and how is Matthew's different? That's what we kind of want to be able to answer so that we can know or at least try to figure out what is God trying to say to us today through these things. And so I'll show the cards up front and answer both of the questions of what's happening in the story and what do I think that we should be pondering today as the church. Um, So for the story, I think what we're supposed to know is um, what's about to happen um, is known and planned by God. So as we like just have turned a page, we got a new scene, the, the tone is set. Jesus is aware that all that's about to happen to him is part of God's plan. It's not a surprise to them. And even though the chief priests are scheming and trying to figure out how to, how to do what they wanna do to Jesus, it is still part of God's plan. And that plan is that Jesus will provide the Passover lamb's blood to deliver his people. So I think that's what we're supposed to see as we read this story. And I think what we're supposed to think about, the, what, Matthew kind of arranged this in a particular way so that we would consider um, and reflect on the difference between the schemers in this section and the woman who is unnamed, the lover of Jesus. So let's get into it. Verses one and two. 
When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So again, when, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, that's Matthew's code for the end of one scene, the start of the next. It's a new chapter, literally. Um, and then he tells his disciples that the Passover is two days away. And then he again, I think for the third or fourth time, predicts his arrest and his crucifixion. But he's not just letting them know that the Passover is two days away for fun. Like, they knew that. Um, they're just outside the city of Jerusalem in this little town called Bethany. It, the whole area would have been absolutely packed as people flocked there, traveled there for the Passover festival and celebration. So Jesus is very clearly spelling this out for the disciples. He is linking the, his crucifixion, him about to be executed, with what they're about to celebrate in two days, which is the Passover. Again, this might be a refresher for many of you, but the Passover is a holiday for God's people at the time to celebrate something that happened way back in the book of Exodus. God's people were slaves um, in Egypt under Pharaoh. He oppressed them terribly. Um, they cried out for deliverance. God sends Moses. Moses reluctantly tells Pharaoh, you need to let God's people go out into the wilderness so that they can worship their God. Pharaoh doesn't allow them to do so. And so God promises at each of these intervals to basically provide a sign or a wonder. Uh, some transitions use the word plagues, which I don't think is actually the best um, word for it, but he's providing these proofs that this God is real. Yahweh is real and he is powerful. Um, and these signs and wonders get increasingly devastating on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but he refuses, keeps refusing to let the Israelites go and worship their God. And so Moses tells Pharaoh one last time, let us go or God is going to wipe out every living firstborn thing from among you in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh does not listen. And so, because of that, God gives instructions to his people to save themselves from this death that was going to sweep through the land of Egypt. The implication is that had they not followed Yahweh's instructions, that it would have also killed the Israelites firstborn. So God told them a number of things, but mainly to slaughter a lamb and to take its blood to the doorposts of their home. And then when the Lord uh, would see the blood of the spotless lamb on their house, he would pass over their house, leaving their firstborn children unharmed. And after, in Exodus, the, the OG passing over, um, God's people leave Egypt. It provides them a way to kind of begin their um, flight out of there. They're pursued by Pharaoh and his soldiers, um, but God delivers them miraculously through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his army are wiped out. <clears throat> so the Passover, from that moment on, became a solemn celebration of how God passed over the Israelites. He spared them, saved them, and delivered them from the Egyptians, their oppressors. And so Jesus and his disciples are about to celebrate the blood of a spotless lamb that provides safety for people against the righteous wrath of God. And so I think what's happening in verses one and two is Jesus is kind of like, guys, Passover's coming, wink, wink. I'm about to be handed over to be slaughtered. I mean, crucified, you know, are you, are you getting the drift? I think that Jesus is spelling it out now for them. D.A. Carson says that he, Jesus is providing a framework for his disciples to interpret his death correctly after it happens. So he wants them to be the first to kind of have the, rich, a theologically rich understanding of what his death meant, what, he was, what Jesus was really doing, why he chose to die for us. 
And though not a disciple at this time, um, Paul, the apostle, will pick up on this and kind of spells it out for us explicitly um, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He calls Jesus our Passover lamb. He says that very clearly. Verses three through five. We kind of have a, a different scene now. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So a few things. First, the chief priests and the, all these kind of religious elites, their schemes come in the text immediately after what we just read, that Jesus had declared this was God's plan all along, that Jesus would be uh, crucified. Um, and so it's ironic that immediately after that come these plans of the um, chief priests. Uh, Two quotes from here, D.A. Carson said, by, by placing verses three through five immediately after verses one and two, Matthew gives the narrative the flavor of God's sovereign control. The leaders may plot, but if Jesus dies, he dies as a voluntary Passover sacrifice. Similarly, um, the apparently free initiative of the priests is to be understood within the context of an already determined divine plan. So that's the first thing to kind of glean from verses three through five. The second, and the religious elite were scheming because they were afraid. Um, Jesus had been gaining popularity while pe people were traveling in huge numbers, arriving at Jerusalem for this Passover celebration. Um, there were so many people there, thousands and thousands of people traveling there. Many had seen Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the donkey in this triumphal entry with the palm branches of people crying out, Hosanna. Um, many people had seen him decisively beat the Pharisees in these debates, demonstrating his wisdom and his authority. They'd probably heard about his miracles if they haven't seen them. Um, they'd seen his followers. So they're in Jerusalem, all these people. They see the evidence around them of Roman occupation and oppression. They're about to celebrate a national holiday about how God delivered their ancestors from their oppressors. So their nationalistic blood is running hot. Their desire for the Messiah to come and free them from their captivity is high. Maybe this Jesus is the Messiah. A lot of them were wondering. And maybe it was time that they're gonna throw down and revolt. And so the chief priests know, I think, sense that the tension is high. And they knew that it would be dangerous to publicly arrest Jesus because of how the crowds might react. And so they wanted to arrest him discreetly and I think shaped the narrative so that they could get the crowds to turn on him, which is exactly what they did. But then, after verses three through five, we just have another kind of interesting shift. There's, there's like four scenes in this short little passage. It shifts kind of like, a, like in a book or a movie. It's like, meanwhile, back at the farm or whatever, and we move to something else. Matthew yanks us to this new scene in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. So the bottle of perfume was likely worth like a year's wages, maybe something to the tune of like fifty dollars to $70,000 today. Um, so the disciples are not only concerned um, about like where their next meal is going to come from, but they're also trying to be concerned, as Jesus asked them to, with caring for the poor. 
And so they're taken aback by what they see as this huge waste of what could have been sold to help their ministry. It would have fed them, and it would have fed a lot of other people. Um, I think it's in John. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us that it was Judas who voiced the concern, but if you look at all the different Gospels telling the story, it was all the disciples. They were all like, why, why did you do that? You, that was a huge waste. Um, the disciples agreed that, but now we get to the heart of this passage in verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Okay, so a few things to note on this one. First, Jesus is not relieving these disciples, or we, his disciples, <laughs> of caring for the poor. When he says the poor you always have with you, that's not like a, hey, don't worry about it, there's always gonna be poor people. Um, clearly, if we read the rest of the gospel that we've already read, Jesus very much cares that his followers care for those who are in need. Um, what he's saying is that this was a unique moment to honor the Messiah before his death, something that they could only do then in that moment. They can and they will, the disciples will care for the poor later, but the woman took advantage of a beautiful opportunity to bless her Messiah. Next, and more importantly, um, he says that the woman has done a beautiful thing. She has prepared him for burial. It's kind of an interesting thought. Um, R.T. France explains this. Uh, Whatever the woman's intention, she has in fact done for him what his executioners will not do, given him the wherewithal for a decent burial. So Jesus' interest is not in his present physical comfort or even in his messianic status, but in his impending dishonorable death. The woman's extravagant loyalty offsets the shameful horror of crucifixion. That is why it must always be remembered, not simply as a model for uncalculating devotion, though it is certainly that, but as an affirmation of the value of his death from the point of view of faith. Um, I don't think that she knew the full value of what she was doing, other than, than giving Jesus a reckless kind of blessing and honor and anointing. Um, but Jesus says that the reason that this is and should be remembered wherever the gospel is preached, which that's being fulfilled right now, we're talking about Matthew's gospel, telling her story, um, the reason it's such a big deal is because she was preparing him for burial, and in doing so, bringing significance to what would have been and what was a shameful death. So it was um, no ordinary crucifixion, but it was the slaughter of the Passover lamb. So then the passage moves on and, with, and ends with what kind of feels like a downer, but it, I think, again, is Matthew intentionally bookending something to bring out the importance of the middle. And so let's read verses 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So it turns out that Judas is a schemer too. He wants to know what he could get for helping the chief priests find the right setting to arrest Jesus. They can't do it in public, and so Judas would kind of be their informant to find the time and the place to get Jesus arrested. And the amount of money was not like insignificant. Scholars think like anywhere from a few thousand dollars to a few months wages. 
Um, most scholars think that the amount of silver for someone like Judas um, doesn't, doesn't seem to justify um, his motivation as being purely greed. In other words, they're questioning just that he wanted some money. He's like, what could I do to earn a couple grand? I guess I could turn Jesus in. Um, most scholars seem to think that Judas had some other motivation for doing so. Some think he was just simply trying to get out, to just like be done. Maybe he sensed that things were kind of getting heated and he wanted out and he was afraid, maybe. Um, I hadn't really thought about this until today and I was thinking on this, but we're kind of tempted to hate Judas. Like as we read through the gospel, it's very easy to be like, ah, freaking Judas, like he's the worst. Um, I don't really think we're supposed to hate anybody, let alone Judas. And I read an interesting theory from one of the scholars that I've quoted like 100 times throughout the series. Um, and it makes a lot of sense to me. So uh, some scholars believe that Judas was attempting to like force Jesus's hand, like to basically force a, forcibly bring about the situation where Jesus would begin the rebellion and the revolution against Rome. He was taking longer than Judas wanted to. Um, he was talking about being killed. He's talking about loving his enemies. Judas wanted the kingdom of God now and he wanted Rome out. And so, say some scholars, Judas was thinking maybe if he like forced an encounter where Jesus would have to like defend himself or rebel or something, that <clears throat> maybe he could um, make this whole Messiah, rebellion, kingdom of God thing happen now. Um, in which case, it wouldn't have been uh, Judas's intent that Jesus would die, um, but maybe just to force kind of a political situation into being. Um, don't know whether or not that's true. We don't know why Judas did what he did, except we know that he was scheming. He had something that he wanted, whether it was money or his personal safety or scheming to force Jesus into his role as the Messiah that he wanted in the timing that he wanted. Judas was calculating and weighing out, how can I, how can I get what I need from Jesus right now? So I think Matthew intentionally placed the story of the woman in between the scheming chief priests and religious elite and the scheming Judas. We have two calculating people who are trying to figure out how to get what they want. And then in the midst of it, we have the sovereign plan of God to offer Jesus as the Passover lamb and the woman who is anointing Jesus with oil, honoring him and unknowingly preparing him for the death and the burial that was coming. So it's a, a beautiful story with some, I think, intentional irony to get us to think about like where, where we fit in that story. So I mentioned at the beginning, our goal is to think about simply what's happening in the story, what, what am I reading here, and then what does the Holy Spirit want to do um, in me or in you? What does he want us to think about today? So again, the story, what's about to happen to Jesus is known and planned by God. And even though the chief priests are scheming, this is God's plan. And Jesus is willingly and bravely walking into his role as the Messiah to be betrayed and mocked and beaten and killed. He has predicted it many times in Matthew. And Matthew has pointed out through other Old Testament prophecies that this is the plan for Jesus all along. So there's an irony here which kind of echoes the same sentiment that comes at the end of the book of Genesis. Um, with the story of Joseph. So Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, almost killed many times. God saves Joseph's life, 
delivers him through all these situations, and he raises him up to eventually become second in command to Pharaoh, a Pharaoh much earlier than the one we talked about in the story of Exodus. Um, at the end of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers are reacquainted after many, many years apart. And when their dad, Jacob, dies, the brothers are worried, like, our, our bond that was our dad is gone. Now what is Joseph gonna do to us? Is he gonna, like, has he been bitter this whole time? Is he gonna get his revenge on us? And so Joseph says one of the most beautiful and profound, and for me, like, it's theologically foundational to, like, understanding my life. Um, he says it at the end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers that what you did to me, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good, that many people should be kept alive. So this line is a theme, not only in the book of Genesis, but I think throughout the whole story of the, the Bible, the Old Testament and of Jesus right now, that there are um, at least two wills at play in life at all times. Yes, there is God's will, but Satan has a will. Both have desires. Satan desires to steal and kill and destroy and undo the good that God wants to do. And God wants to bring life to save his people. And so the chief priests, the religious elite, and perhaps Judas, they had their own intentions. Intentions influenced by Satan himself, but God also had his own intentions through what was happening here, what's about to happen. As the chief priests schemed and Judas made his plans to betray Jesus for whatever reason, God, in those actions, God is actually working out his plan too. And his plan was to offer Jesus as the Passover lamb whose blood would take away the sins of the world and save God's people. And in the same way that the lamb's blood would provide safety for those houses of the Israelites in Egypt, provide them the opportunity to escape from their oppressors, so Jesus' blood will provide safety for those who trust in him and provides escape and deliverance from Satan, sin, and death. And it seems that this is, at least in part, why Jesus um, institutes the Lord's Supper as part of the Passover meal celebration. Jesus' broken body and his shed blood provide not only safety and salvation, but liberation and freedom. And so in a, in a few minutes, we're gonna share the Lord's Supper together. If you missed it on the way in, there's the cup in the back there. Um, but when we share the Lord's Supper, it's an echo of the Passover. It's like the new covenant version of it. We eat and drink as Jesus asked us to, and we proclaim Jesus's death as our victory and our freedom. So I think that's the, the like meat and potatoes of the story that we've read here in verses one through 16. But there's some stuff to think about. Like I said, I think Matthew has given us the chief priests as scheming to get something that they want and Judas as scheming to get something that he wants and he's put in the middle of it the, the treasure of this unnamed woman who loves God deeply, who loved Jesus deeply. Both of these groups on the outsides carefully weighed out their options. Judas asked, how much, how much would you give me? What's my, what's my loyalty worth? He's asking, he's weighing that out. And then the Pharisees, the way that you kind of read it in the original language, they carefully weighed out his silver. They were calculating how much to give Judas for what he was doing. But the woman, this lover of Jesus, does not calculate or weigh out 
this thing of inexpressible value. She basically like, I think, it's this stone alabaster jar and I think the way that it's opened is to break the stone off. And I think, I think that she dumped like the whole thing on his head or much of it, what would normally be just a few drops to like really honor like a valued guest at your house. She douses him with it, pours it on Jesus, offers an act of like deep honor and love, which she doesn't even fully understand the significance of. I think that's a huge deal. And so I think we're meant to place ourselves somewhere in the spectrum, I guess. What, are we schemers? Or are we like this woman who showed great love for Jesus? Now obviously we're not in the same positions as the chief priests or Judas. We're not trying, can't have Jesus arrested or murdered or betrayed. But I do wonder, are there ways in which we are um, maybe pushing Jesus's lordship aside or our allegiance to him aside because we want something that he's not providing for us that we think he should maybe not answering a prayer in the way we think we should and so maybe we just kind of abandon ship a little bit and I think we can do this in really small ways where we don't like totally abandon ship of our faith in Jesus but there's just kind of these little quiet resignations of your full loyalty to him um and so I think that we're meant to see this woman and be invited, invited back into this uncalculated um, love and honor and loyalty to Jesus. And so it's kind of a strange question for reflection, but um, I would just ask yourself if your love for Jesus, your loyalty to him is calculated and measured and therefore limited. Again, I think our goal is to try to be like this unnamed woman, offering our lives as love and worship to Jesus, recklessly with everything that we have, with whatever is most valuable to us, even when, maybe even especially when we don't understand the true like beauty of the things that we do for Jesus. We get into these habits and these routines of things that we know we're supposed to do and we forget. Maybe it matters more to God than you could ever know that it does. It's what Jesus prized in this passage from this woman, I think it's meant to be our goal. Whether that's offering Jesus um, time, time where you attempt to be with him, or offering to his kingdom your resources, the things that God has given you in this life to share with others, spending time with him in just worship and prayer, things like silence and solitude and fasting, all the things that we do, the things that we want to do the habits and rhythms that we wish that we have, the habits and rhythms that we used to have and fell out of for whatever reason. These are acts of love and devotion that demonstrate that we think Jesus is worth following, that he is supremely valuable and worth showering with every bit of love that we know how to give, even if we do it imperfectly, especially when we do it imperfectly, and like this woman, we won't know ex exactly how it glorifies Jesus. That's not an equation that we like, can answer or understand, but it's what he wants from us. He invites us, I think, to love him like this woman did. And so when you think about Holy Week coming up soon, Good Friday and Easter, um, I think the goal is to be like this woman. This is the front and center story, the first, like, good example of behavior that we see as this passion narrative begins. And it's this woman pouring out love 
on Jesus. I think that should be our goal. Imperfect, but good actions and habits of love and loyalty that somehow honor and glorify Jesus and give him thanks for his sacrifice for us.